Take your Bible and open to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Verse 18, Matthew 28, verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you. Uh, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let, let's pray for our time and then pray for the Volkers. Our Father, uh, we're thankful for this opportunity to um, open your word this evening. What a great way to uh, spend our last time here in 2023, 20, uh, praising you and in your word. And we do pray for Ken and his family. Um, just pray your encouragement and grace upon them and, and their time of uh, struggle with uh, Ken's mom, Barb, passing away. And just encourage their hearts, and uh, may you be honored in all the arrangements that are done, and um, help us to come alongside Ken and Darcy. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. She'd been sick for a little bit, a little while, um, but kind of really went rapidly, pretty down downhill, pretty quickly. So just remember, her name was Barb, and um, Ken and his family. All right, tonight again, we meet for the last time here in 2023, and I want us to spend a little bit of time considering. One of the primary functions of the church, a very important aspect uh, of uh, life in our fellowship, something we need to work on and really incorporate more, I think, into the fellowship uh, always, but in this upcoming year, it's the issue of discipleship. Discipleship. Uh, Christ says there in verse 18, go therefore and make disciples, matheteo. Uh, the, the word has the idea of learners, learning believers. Uh, it's a word that goes beyond simply accumulating uh, converts. It's a word that refers to someone's growth in their faith, someone who's growing in their love for Christ. And, and the command to make disciples goes beyond the moment of salvation to really a lifetime of growth, a lifetime of, of sanctification. So we present the gospel to somebody, we lead somebody to faith in Christ, and after that, after they repent, we teach them to observe everything that the Lord has commanded. So that's the process of reproduction. That's what we are to do. We're in the reproduction business. A life always produces life. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he says, uh, and, and the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach uh, others also. So in that one verse, Timothy 2 Timothy 2, 2, you have, you have four different generations. You have Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, and then faithful men to others. So again, we're in the reproduction business. The process of passing along spiritual truth and spiritual life to others. So again, Paul says, look, I taught you. You go teach other faithful men who are going to rise up, and they're going to go out and still teach other faithful men who are going to likewise repeat the process. So again, we're in the reproduction business. And we re- reproduce ourselves. In Matthew 28, obviously, verse 19 is the mission statement of the church, if you will, the Great Commission, go and make, all, go and make disciples of all the nations. Uh, evangelize the world, lead people to faith and repentance, and then train them up in Christ's likeness so they can go out and do the same uh, to others. Uh, again, it's the mission of the church universal, and it's the mission of the local church. That's our mission here at uh, Cornerstone Bible Church. And listen, each and every one of us has a personal responsibility to obediently fulfill that mission. 
Each and every one of us has a personal responsibility to obediently fulfill that mission. We, we must be personally committed to fulfilling that responsibility and command that Christ has given to us. It's the mission he had when he came here. It's the same mission that the Father has uh, to, to seek and save the lost. Again, God so loved the world, he what? He gave, right? He sent his son. He gave his only begotten son. And Christ so loved the world, he did what? He came to seek and save the lost for the glory of the Father. So likewise, as followers of Christ, we are sent into the world to love the lost, to seek and win them for the glory of Christ, the, the glory of the Father. And then to see them grow in their maturity and their love for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to see them grow in their faith and in their Christ-likeness. As Christ-likeness is really the goal of our interaction with people in the area of discipleship. In fact, Paul said this in Romans 8.28. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So those whom God has set his electing love upon, uh, he has the goal in their life that they would become just like his son, Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. So that's God's purpose for us. Once we come to repentance, the faith of Christ is we become like his son, like Jesus, that we would live like him, that we would love like him, we would look like him, we would act like him. We'd have the same compassion for the loss that he has. That's what a true believer looks like. They look like Christ. And that's how a true believer behaves. That's what true believers do. Uh, they have a passion for the lost, a passion for the souls of men, uh, a great desire to see them raised up and, and to see uh, uh, men come to acknowledge the truth and reach out with others to others with the, the gospel. So again, that God in Christ might be glorified. Now, th- this commandment here, this command comes from the one who exercises all dominion, right? This one who is the, the ultimate sovereign, the divine sovereign with all authority. Verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them and saying, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. All authority, exousia, just means all power, all rule, all, all power, all rule to govern, to command. Uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So this is his will, and his will, his commands must be submitted to. It must be, they must be obeyed uh, universally. It, it's not a suggestion. It's a command of the sovereign. Again, the ruler of the heavens and the earth. And he says, all authority has been given to me. So where did he get that authority? Well, obviously, he gets it from God the Father. Jesus' sovereign authority was given to him by the Father, the one who has given all judgment to the Son, as Jesus said in John 5, verse 22. God the Father is the one, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, who made him both Lord and Christ, Jesus Christ. God the Father, this is who Jesus is. He is the Lord and the Christ. Now, Philippians 2, 9, uh, he has therefore highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and those are in heaven on the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. That's who Jesus Christ is, the one who's been given authority by the Father. So again, before Jesus gives the command, the commission, he establishes his absolute authority and our responsibility and our supreme obligation to submit ourselves to that authority. Whatever the Lord commands, that's what we must do. And whatever the Lord commands, whatever he sends us out to do, we must understand that it's done again in his power. Uh, it's in his resource. It's his authority that's been delegated to us to go out and represent him in the world. So the, tax, the task is not overwhelming in our own strength uh, or in our own power, but it's possible through his power. It's possible his, through his authority, through, his, through the sovereignty of the person of Jesus Christ. And then he says, go out and make disciples of all nations. All, it's ethnos. Ethnos, it just means all people. So again, Christ is the, the sovereign one. He has the authority over heaven and earth. His authority obviously extends worldwide. And Jesus is the savior of the 
world, right? He's the Savior of the world. The command of Christ, again, to his followers is take that message out to everyone, to all the nations, to all the people groups, because Christianity is going to have a worldwide impact, and it does have a worldwide impact. In fact, if you stop and think in the book of Revelation, Revelation 7, verse 9, it actually is an encouragement to us from our perspective because it's still future, but it confirms that the mission is going to be successful. Revelation 7, 9, after these things, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they're crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So that's just encouraging us that God's salvific purposes are going to come to pass. There's going to be a great multitude in heaven who will come from every tribe and tongue and, and kindred and, and people. A so vast of a number that no one can count them. The vast multitude of men from all nations and tribes again are going to be in heaven praising God and praising Christ because they will have been reached with the gospel. Because God has a love for the world. God has a love for the world. He sends Christ to the world. Christ has a love for the world. Therefore Christ comes. And again, we who are Christ's followers must be obedient to the command to go out and, and, and proclaim that gospel. We must go. Verse 19, go therefore, again, make disciples of the nations. I mean, can you again think of any greater demonstration of the love that you'd have for Christ and, and the love that you'd have for the Father than just be obedient to the command of Scripture, the command of Christ. Go and tell others of the great love that God has for this rebellious world that is lost, that is perishing, that is about to face his wrath. Go because you're a debtor. Just like Paul saw himself, right? Romans chapter 1, and Paul saw himself as a debtor to grace. And we too likewise are debtors to grace. We've been pounding this for a long time in the book of Romans in the view of the mercies of Christ, right? In the view of mercies of God in your own life through Christ. Out of God's love for you, be obedient to the command of Scripture. Out of a, a, a desire to be obedient to the, to the command of Scripture, out of a love for God, a love for Christ, out of love for fellow men who are perishing, who just like we were apart from God's grace in life, we go proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the gospel and then we enter into discipling relationships. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now the main verb, the central command, the one imperative is that phrase, make disciples. Again, believing learners, those who turn from their sin, those who follow Christ as Lord, those who place their faith and trust in him and follow him in a life of learning, a life of obedience. Uh, Christ says, John uh, eight thirty one. if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples, right? It's not a momentary thing. It's a lifelong thing, a lifelong obedience, lifelong learning, lifelong following the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the imperative, again, is to make disciples. Make disciples. Make lifelong learners. He doesn't say go out and find people to fill the pews. He doesn't say go out and have people raise their hands or walk an aisle or sign a pledge card. He doesn't say get a people to stand up and say a prayer. He commands make disciples of all the ethnos, all the nations, all the peoples. Because disciples are true followers of Christ. Again, a disciple is somebody who repents of their sin, they place their faith in Christ, and immediately they're saved, immediately they're a disciple of the person of Jesus Christ, and immediately they're no longer who they used to be, new creations in Christ, they're filled with the person of the Holy Spirit. And then they follow him in a lifetime of obedience. Because the command of the true believer, all true disciples of Christ, from the beginning, what's the one thing that Christ said and all those guys he called to himself and everybody he calls to himself, he said what? Follow me, right? Follow me. That's the command of the scripture if you're a disciple. 
Now, those who refuse to come, those who are unwilling to follow Christ, they don't belong to Christ. They may go to church. They may call themselves believers or Christians even, but, but they're not truly saved. And if they're unwilling to follow the, the, uh, the Lord of the universe... Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So again, there's one imperative, make disciples. And I think it's really interesting that that command is only given once. That's it. There's nothing else after that. <laughs> you know, no, it's only given once. You go, well, why is that interesting? Because it's just a natural part of life. God didn't have to repeat the command at the beginning, be fruitful and multiply, did he? Did he say that more than once? Answer, no. No. Because life begets life. Life begets life, right? Life brings more life. That's just natural. He didn't have to say, be fruitful and multiply more than once. He didn't have to say, he doesn't have to say, go and make disciples because it's just a natural part of the redeemed life. It's a natural part of the redeemed life if you're a Christian. Now, there are three participles, the going, baptizing, and baptizing, and teaching. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Those are the participles. And the word, the form of the word go is probably best translated having gone. So, because life begets life, and having gone is probably the best way to translate that word, it's an assumption that you as a believer would not wait for the world to come to you, but you would... Go to them. You'd have already gone, having gone. And you don't just make disciples wherever you happen to go, but also within that word is the idea of reaching out to unreached people. Having gone, reaching out, life begets life. It's just a natural part of life. Having gone to all the peoples, all the nations, all the tongues, all the tribes, having crossed every boundary, every border, every nationality, every society, every economic status, etc. and so forth. We just reach out to everyone because life begets life. It's part of the natural, uh, part of redeemed life. Now, initially, and when Christ first started calling his disciples, he, he called his uh, followers to go to the lost house of the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's Matthew chapter 10. God's design initially for the new covenant to be uh, exploded into the time in which uh, he came was initially to offer salvation to the Jews first and then them to, to use them as missionaries to the rest of the world. That's why Paul says the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and then the Greek, right? But, but the, the Jews re- rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. Matthew 22. Now the invitation is for salvation to go directly through the, to the entire world through the church, uh, the remnant that loves the Lord Jesus Christ, the remnant that will be obedient to him, that will follow him in all aspects of life. So now the true disciple of Christ, having gone to the entire world, he takes the message. He takes the message of good news, that God is indeed reality, and that Christ has defeated death, that there's salvation, there's forgiveness of sin uh, through the resurrected Christ. The good news that man can be saved from the wrath to come, that he can have a reconciled relationship with God. He can be taken out of the realm of being an enemy and placed into the family of God to be a friend and to be a son for those who repent, for those who return from their sin. They can follow him and they can enjoy him forever. They can worship him and love him and serve him and adore him. And anyone can come, all can come. Again, whosoever will may come. The, the openness, the, the, the uh, uh, offer is open to everyone. 
So how do you make disciples? Well, number one, going, having gone, right, to all the nations, all the world, all the people. Secondly, verse 19, baptizing. Go, therefore, and making, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so baptize, just baptizo, means literally to immerse. I don't want to get crazy on this, but the only way to baptize somebody is to immerse somebody, and the only way to immerse somebody is to immerse them, to baptize them. It's transliteration of the word, Right? And there's nothing absolutely salvific about the word or about uh, about baptism, but baptism really is the initial command of Christ for his followers to obey. And if a person is unwilling to be baptized, at best that's disobedience, and perhaps it's a, a, an unwillingness to comply with the command of Christ to be baptized gives maybe a, a reason to really doubt the genuineness of one's profession of faith in Christ. Mark sixteen sixteen. Uh, Jesus says, he who has been believed and been baptized shall be saved, but he who does, who has disbelieved shall be condemned. So again, salvation is not a work of salvation, but it's a God-ordained command that accompanies salvation. Uh, and Jesus makes it very clear that it's disbelief. It's not the failure in, in Mark 16. It's not, it's not uh, failure to be baptized that condemns, but it's those who reject Christ, those who, who, who are disbelieving, those who are not obedient. And as you see in the New Testament, salvation and baptism really go together. Peter said basically the same thing uh, 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 to the unbelievers there at Pentecost when they were confronted with the truth about who Jesus was and whom they crucified. He said, what shall, they said, what shall we do? And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, repent and let each of you what? Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Right? Now, a person saved by grace alone, through faith alone, the person of Jesus Christ alone, salvation is a gift of God, but by God's own will... The act of baptism it really is his design, his divinely designed sign that a believer is going to publicly identify with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, it's a command <clears throat> that has to be obeyed. It's a command that has to be followed. If you stop for a moment and think about the context of, of the New Testament, Christ has been uh, publicly executed. He's a criminal. He's seen as an enemy to the, to the Romans. He's seen as a, a traitor to Judaism. For you to take your stand publicly with the person of Jesus Christ it is to take your stand publicly with the person of Jesus Christ. And again, if you're in Judaism, it's going to cost you something. They'll de-synagogue you. They'll kick you out of the synagogue. You'll lose your friends and, and, and family. So to take a public stand for Christ through the waters of baptism is a big deal. It's a big deal then. It's a big deal now. And again, you see baptism. Again, it's not salvific, but you see baptism always associated with conversion all the way through the book of Acts in the early church. It's always synonymous with being a disciple synonymous with salvation, non-optional, not a second-level event. You claim, you claim that Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you need to be baptized. Again, it's Christ who instituted, instituted uh, that the command as an outward act of identification with him, a visible public testimony that you belong to Christ. That tells us when we're talking about discipleship, the very act of discipleship, it's a public deal. It's a public acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, baptism is a public acknowledgement that you've submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, true biblical discipleship doesn't happen alone. You can't disciple yourself. There, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. How many times have I said that we have to jettison this Western mentality of the John Wayne thing and going west by and pulling our bootstraps up and whatever? I mean, we, we can't do that. That's not biblical Christianity. We're saved individually, but we're saved into a fellowship. We're saved into a body, saved into a family. 
There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Discipleship happens in the communion of the saints. You can't become a disciple of Christ in isolation. You need to be a part of the body of Christ. Because that's where discipleship occurs. That's where disciples are made. That there's a need. God has ordained this need for each other in the body of Christ. For mutual encouragement. uh, Mutual accountability. And he says when you baptize, you baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I I don't really think that's a formula per se that has to be necessarily followed. I don't know that you see that uh, exact formula, if you will, used by uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, uh, so I don't think it's really a sacramental formula that some people may take it to be. I think what he's just saying, look, it's a reminder, a comprehensive statement that once you come to Christ, you're in union with the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You belong to God in, co- in total. We are his by name, by purchase of the person uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So having gone, baptizing, now teaching. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I command you. So the third requirement for making a disciple is to be taught or to teach. You go teach. You instruct. The dasco. Uh, you, you instruct. You give understanding. You teach them to observe everything that Christ commands. Now, again, that's the very definition of what it means to be a disciple. You're a learning believer of Christ. So again, once somebody becomes saved, once they become a disciple of Christ... A true disciple always has an obedient heart. They want to know what Christ says. They want to be obedient to Christ. They want to, they want to please the Lord in all things. So we're to lead people to faith in Christ. We're to teach them everything that the Lord has commanded. And then we're to teach them to obey everything the Lord has commanded. And again, that's why we teach the way we do around here. That's why we preach the way we do around here. Because we believe that every word uh, of the Bible comes from the mouth of God himself. It all comes from God. Every, every word needs to be known. Every word needs to be understood. Every word needs to be followed and obeyed in order that we might grow in our faith and grow in our love for the person uh, of Jesus Christ. The passage there in uh, Matthew 28 ends like this. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I mean, it, tremendous, tremendous truth. The promise of the continual presence of Christ in order to do what he has commanded his followers to do. So we have the promise of his power. Now we have the promise of his presence. And that little phraseology, the end of the age, just speaks to the second coming of Christ. He's going to come back. He's going to return bodily. He's going to judge the world. He's going to rule an earthly kingdom. And until that time, throughout this present age, he's always going to be with us. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. He's going to always lead us, empower us, and enable us to fulfill what he has commanded us to do in in the context carrying out the Great Commission. So Christ is promising his presence, and promising his presence is really designed to be a comfort to us, to to be an encouragement to our hearts in a world that is dark, a, a world that is full of hatred. Go in my power. Go in my presence. It's encouraging to my heart. I don't remember who it was, but I'm starting to hear more and more people uh, correct themselves when they start to pray going, Lord, be with us. And they go, oh, well, Lord, thank you for being with us. Right? Because now what he says, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We need to speak to ourselves the truth. We need to understand the truth. Because understanding the truth allows us to have courage in the time of present difficulties. Listen, if things get really dark... It gives the light a shot, an opportunity to shine brighter. Didn't I say that this morning? If things get really dark in this next upcoming year, there's one who's sovereign above it all. We need to know that one. We need to love that one. And you need not be afraid of the darkness. We, we serve the one who is light, the one who created light. 
Okay, so that's, that's the command to make disciples. So what is discipleship? What does it mean to disciple someone? Well, let me just give you a very basic definition. Very simply, discipling is building a friendship with someone to do them good spiritually. Discipling is just building a friendship with someone to do them good spiritually. And each and every person in the room, if you're a believer in Christ, you need to be in a discipling relationship with someone. If you're a believer in Christ, you need to be in a discipling relationship with someone. Someone whom you are influencing towards Christ-likeness. So if you're younger in the faith, then you find somebody who's a little older in the faith, and someone who's a little bit farther down the road, excuse me, in their walk with Christ, who can teach you and challenge you and encourage you and help you in your relationship and under in your understanding of God and Christ. And if you're somebody who's older, then you need to be in a relationship with somebody who's a little bit younger, somebody who's not as far along in their faith, not as far along in their walk with Christ as you are. And you need to be influencing them towards Christ-likeness. Everybody needs to be on the giving end, building a a friendship uh, with somebody for the purpose of building up spiritually. And I think everybody also needs to be on the receiving end. I think it's a two-way street uh, with different people, depending on where they're in their walk with the Lord. Everybody needs to be in a discipling relationship with someone if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, if you're a follower of Christ, this is not an optional path. I'm going to opt out of this one. Thanks. I'll just come to the morning, but I'm not getting involved with anybody during the week. It's not optional for you. You've not been given that option. The sovereign of the universe commands you to make disciples. And to make disciples, you need to be a disciple. So you can't opt out. You can't choose to take it or not take it. It's the command of Scripture, the command of Christ. Again, go therefore make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And discipleship works through instruction and imitation. Instruction and imitation. So as believers, we're to be imitators of God, imitators of Christ, imitators of others. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me, Paul says, as I am of Christ. Uh, Hebrews 13.7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of their life and imitate their faith. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.10, you, however, followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering. Every one of us needs to be imitating and be imitated as we follow the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us needs to be in a discipling relationship where we are encouraging and being encouraged in a Christward direction, befriending others to grow in their Christ-likeness, helping them grow in their Christ-likeness. Seeking out others who can help us in our Christ-likeness. Right? And all of that happens by way of what? Relationship. Right? All of that happens by way of relationship. And it all happens by way of, uh, of intentionality. So discipling relationships need to become an ordinary part of what it means to be a member of this congregation. Because this is exactly what it means to be a Christian. This is what a, a follower of Christ does. Programs, books, curriculums... Those things might help to a certain extent. They may aid the process. But to be able to promote, encourage, and sustain a culture of discipling comes first and foremost from the heart. Comes first and foremost from the heart. From a heart that desires to be obedient. From a heart that desires to see God in Christ honored. From a heart that desires to express our love for God, our, our love for Christ, and our love for other fellow men who once were like we when we were apart from Christ, or who were once like we when we were infants in our faith. And the more we do this, the more we reach out to others, the more we're actually going to look like 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we're going to be conformed to his image. Because that's exactly what he did. You'll remember the story. He chose 12 quite, quite ordinary men, quite unexceptional, 12 quite unexceptional ordinary men. And they all came from different backgrounds. And what did he do to them? What did he do with them? He poured his life out to them. He poured his life into them. He lived with them. He encouraged them. He, he challenged them. He rebuked them. He taught them. He loved them. Because he was preparing them for ministry. <clears throat> and again, that interaction that he did with those men was in t- with intentionality. Because he was choosing these men to take the gospel to the world. To beg men and women to lay, alive, lay aside their hostility towards God. To come to God through Christ. To receive the offer of peace and reconciliation and forgiveness of sin. Listen. There's no plan B. These guys are it. The future of Christianity rises and falls on the ministry of these men. Now Christ could have communicated uh, the gospel apart from these guys. I guess he could have uh, dropped information from the sky. He he could have uh, produced holograms of himself and sent that into every village and city. Could have waited until everybody had a uh, VHS players so they could have the, the Jesus film. <laughs> One guy, Bruce, knows, right? This is the most revolutionary thing that's ever happened. VHS, yeah. Beta? No. <laughs> could have waited till everybody had a cell phone. Could have waited till everybody had social media. Then he could have communicated himself to the world. But he didn't do that. He did what? He came. He incarnated himself. He chose flesh and blood. Again, Christ incarnated himself. He came. He lived among men. He chose other men, flesh and blood, extraordinary, simple men. Extraordinarily unexceptional men, right? He just chose flesh and blood men. He came alongside them. He walked with them so that they could live with him and learn from him. He taught them. He taught them the content of the gospel. He molded, uh, modeled for them the gospel of grace, and he lived it out before them. And then he did what? Loved them. He loved them. He called them to himself. He sent them out to go and do the same likewise for others. Again, if we follow Christ, then we have to do what Christ has done. And I I don't think you can overlook the fact that Christ chose to relate to men on a personal level. I don't think you can overlook the fact that Christ chose to relate to men on a personal level. That means that each and every one of us not only needs to hear the gospel, but we need to see the gospel. In some kind of relational fashion. In in some kind of a bodily presence. Which means that you can't get what you need or you can't uh, receive uh, what you need in a relational manner by way in the area of discipleship. Again, by video or podcast. Uh, you, You can't get it on YouTube. What we need is not just to be dispensers of information or receivers of information... But what we all need is to be loved and to love. We need to love and to be loved. We need to challenge and encourage and correct. And we need to be, we need to challenge and encouragement and correction that comes from something or someone that breathes, someone that has a heartbeat, somebody that has dirty feet, somebody that walks the road of life right alongside of us. We need people to come alongside us that can share our life with us, our faith with us, so that they can see our struggles and we can see their struggles and together we can see how desperate we all are for Christ in our lives. 
so that we might encourage others along the way not to become discouraged, but to continue together in a pursuit of Christ's likeness. We need to move on desperately, need to move on just beyond an information dump. We, each one of us in the building, need to befriend somebody. We need to befriend somebody and we need to have a friendship with somebody for their spiritual good uh, so that they can go out and do likewise because that's what Christ did. And, and that's what Christians do. They, they imitate Christ. They, they replicate what he did. Now, if we're going to do that and we're going to make that more of an intentional focus here uh, in the next year, uh, upcoming Lord willing, uh, we need to bring that to the forefront of our thinking. We need to start thinking about that now, about being intentional, each and every one of us, about being intentional with relationships uh, for others around us for their spiritual good. Because, again, nobody walks alone in the body of Christ. We are desperately in need of each other. We're desperately in need of being committed to a, a kind of community, a discipling community, where we're all committed to doing each other's spiritual good. So what does it look like? Well, here it is. <clears throat> You'll like this one. It needs to be structured. It needs to be spontaneous. Both. Needs to be structured and spontaneous. You look at the life of Christ. At times he sat down and he formally taught his disciples and he allowed them to observe his life and observe his obedience to, to God the Father. And they lived together. They walked together. They had intentional times. And we need to have intentional times. Uh, perhaps we decide to read a book together. We decide to read a, a book of the Bible together. And then to get together and talk over what we learned over a cup of coffee or lunch or whatever. Intentional times of teaching. Intentional times of training. What, what we all need, what Christ provided for his disciples is life on life. So discipleship has to be structured and has to be spontaneous. Maybe you just decide to call somebody up and go to a movie. Or decide to call, call somebody up and go over for dinner. And then afterwards, you just sit down and you start discussing things that you either saw in the movie or the, the, the meal that you had together. I mean, it wasn't planned, but it just naturally occurs. Something you saw during the day that encouraged you or challenged you spiritually. You take a walk uh, t- together and see the beautiful sunset and have an opportunity to speak of God and his glory and the, uh, of his creation. Uh, but that's what we need in life. We need life on life. We need to be befriended by somebody and we need to befriend somebody else who will do good and we have an opportunity to do spiritual good for. And again, it doesn't just happen. It has to be with some intentionality. It has to be with some kind of planning and forethought. And, and, and the purpose uh, broken down into somewhat of component parts, if you will, uh, just like uh, there are elements of of personal qualities that are necessary for an effective discipleship relationship, certain patterns that have to be followed or certain things you should be looking for in in someone who disciples you. And and instead of just speaking about generalities, I thought it'd be helpful if we took our Bibles and turned over 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That's what I want you to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to just kind of run through this kind of quick. Uh, and verse 14, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14. We'll just work down through verse 21. Now, initially, this might not look like a how-to passage on discipleship, but it really is a how-to passage on discipleship. Verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, Paul says, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So here's somebody who calls himself a father, a spiritual father, verse 15. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would have, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. 
So again, to be their spiritual father, that means to the Corinthians, he's the one who gave them spiritual birth. He's from a human side anyway, right? He's the one who shared the gospel with them, or at least with most of them. He's the human element, if you will, that God used to bring the truth to them and bring them to spiritual life. Now, obviously, if somebody's your spiritual father, they have a love for you. They care for you. They want to see you grow in grace. They want to see you grow in your knowledge in Christ's likeness. They look out for your spiritual well-being. Now, again, look at verse 15. He contrasts himself here with tutors, T-U-T-O-R-S, tutors. Your father, through the gospel, with tutors. Uh, you, uh, you have countless tutors in Christ, right? Countless teachers, guides, instructors, guardians. Yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, or in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now, a tutor is just uh, somebody who comes along who's hired, right? Someone who uh, is bound to their students by money. They're going to come and teach them information. But, but a father has a relational aspect in his uh, uh, dealings that the tutors don't. F- fathers are bound to children by love. Tutors are bound to their students by money, right? They're hired hands. But fathers are bound to their children by love, bound to their children by a personal, intimate, life-on-life relationship. If you wanted to put it in the, into the context of the day, uh, I think you could say your tutor is your internet pastor. And boy, do people tell me about all the internet pastors they're listening to. Your internet podcast pastor. The podcast you subscribe to. Those people may be giving you information, but that kind of relationship is insufficient for discipling. Because let me tell you what, those people don't love you. They don't even know you. The pastor that you're listening to on the internet or the Christian author that you're reading, that's not sufficient for you to have the kind of discipling relationship that God wants you to have. Detached preachers, internet teachers, Christian writers, they can't replace the personal loving relationship of an incarnate, in the flesh relationship with someone else. We all need spiritual fathers. We don't need just information. We need life on life. We need life on life. We need someone who can come and challenge us and encourage us in our walk with Christ. Someone who can love us. And then somebody that we can follow. For a year to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel, verse 16. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Now, before we open that up a little bit, let me just back up a bit and give you a little bit of a heart attitude of this man, Paul, and the genuine love that he has for these people that are in Corinth. Uh, turn back to chapter 3. Turn back to chapter 3 and just look there at verse 5. What's an attitude, what's the kind of an attitude you want to find in somebody who, who loves you and somebody who's going to disciple you? Verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. So the heart attitude of someone who's a discipler, the heart attitude of someone who wants to do someone else genuine good on a spiritual level and comes alongside them really to help, that heart attitude of that person has to realize they're absolutely nothing. They're really nothing. 
God's the one that causes the growth. Again, Paul's saying, look, I, you know, Paul's is watering. I'm, I'm planting. I, I mean, God's the one that gives the growth, right? We, we can't make it happen. Ba- basically, Paul and Apollos are nothing more than servants. Neither one of them are anybody, any, anybody special. Just recipients of God's grace in their own life. And they want to pass that truth off to other people so that they might grow in grace too because they're both debtors to grace. You see the same attitude of humility at the beginning of chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Paul says, look, I'm I'm nobody. I'm just a servant of Christ. I want to be found faithful. I want to be found trustworthy. In fact, the word servant in verse 1 is literally under rower, under rower. It was a title for a slave, one who rode in the bottom tier of a ship, the most despised of slaves. And that's what Paul says he is. I'm just nobody. I'm a servant of Christ, lower level galley slave on the third deck down. He's just speaking out of the reality of the humility of who he is. I'm just a slave of Christ. I'm just a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. What is a steward? Well, a steward doesn't own anything, right? He's he's managing what belongs to somebody else. That's what a steward is. And Paul says, look, I'm just a steward. I'm just a slave of Christ. I've been given the privilege, the responsibility of speaking forth the mysteries of God. God's revealed world, word, uh, the gospel of grace the, about the person of Jesus Christ, the love that God has for the world. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of ser- stewards that one be found trustworthy. Again, Paul said, look, I just want to be faithful. Verse 3, <clears throat> but to me it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by that acquitted. But uh, the one who examines me, he is the Lord. Therefore, do not go, do not go on passing judgment before the time, and wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, that each one's man's praise will come from God. He says, "Look, I'm not looking for human approval. I'm, I'm not uh, gonna play." Uh, 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 one of the favorite games that a lot of people in Christianity like to play, uh, let's evaluate the pastor. Well, mine's good. Yours is not as good. My, mine's more gifted than yours. He says, I'm not into that. I'm not looking for any kind of human approval. It's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. I'm just doing everything I do for God. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I don't need men's approval. I don't, I'm just going to let God praise me if he sees fit. So it's kind of the complete opposite of what you see in a lot of modern ministries today where you have like superstar, quote unquote, superstar pastors, right? Superstar celebrities in the Christian world. Look down at verse 10. <clears throat> verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you are prudent, Christ. We are weak. You are strong. We are distinguished, but we are, uh, you are distinguished. We are without honor. 
To this present hour, we were both hungry and thirsty, and we were poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. We toil, working uh, with our hands. When uh, we are reviled, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure. And when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. So if you're going to be discipled by somebody, you need to find somebody that walks in an attitude of utmost humility. And if you're going to be the discipler of somebody else, don't be a superstar because you're not. If somebody wants to come along and disciple you and they think too highly of themselves, then you should run from them. Because you want to be discipled by somebody who, who understands they're nothing more than a slave and Christ is everything. You want to be discipled by somebody who understands they're nothing and Christ is all. I have over the years met far too many young men who want to be somebody in the Christian culture. I, I've met them. I'm going to leave this church and go to that church so I can write books because I'm going to be somebody. Okay. Those young men who set out to make a name for themselves in the Christian community, if they want to disciple you, my encouragement would be as you run from them. Choose an old guy, a galley slave, a nobody, somebody who's a fool for Christ, somebody who's some, the scum of the world, someone who desires to make the center of attention not themselves, but the center of attention Christ. Somebody who loves Christ no matter what it costs them. Somebody who loves Christ with their all. Therefore, that person will love you. And that person will lead you into a deeper, loving relationship with the Savior. So you need to walk in humility. You need to share your life with people. You need to give your life away. You need to find somebody who's willing to do that with you on a spiritual level. Again, discipling is about entering into relationships, friendships to do the other person spiritually good. Now, if you want to have an impact on people for eternity, then we look at, as we look at the text specifically, you'll see by way of implication a pattern that Paul has in his life. There's six characteristics here, six elements necessary to have an effective discipling relationship with somebody else. Now, again, it all starts with a desire to be obedient. It all starts with a desire to be a blessing spiritually in someone else's life. It starts with obviously sharing the gospel with somebody and leading somebody to repentance and faith in Christ and then helping them grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of, of the Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, we don't have time to develop it in full, but, but it was a corrective. He's writing a corrective to the Corinthians. Uh, there are churches, you're familiar, there are churches of a variety of different problems. Uh, um, divisions over this, divisions over that, divisions over ministers. Uh, again, there are a group of people collectively that are proud. They're boastful. That contributes to their factionalism. Uh, they're proud of their human wisdom, proud of their human leaders. They're a worldly church, a carnal church, the Corinthians. Self-satisfied church. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you. So again, the purpose of Paul writing is to admonish, not to shame. He doesn't want to destroy them. It's not out of spite. He doesn't want to harm them. He wants to help them. The word admonish speaks of warning, reproving. 
it speaks to the fact of the reality that there's something wrong that needs to be corrected, something that needs to be right, made right, some kind of uh, belief, some kind of attitude, some kind of habit of life, something that needs to be changed. So if we're going to come alongside uh, uh, and enter into relationships of, uh, with discipling relationships for the care of other people, for their spiritual good, we're going to have to at some time have the courage to confront people in, in kindness out of love for them. And if we're going to sit on the other side of the table and we're going to enter into these kind of relationships, then we're going to have to put on a little bit thicker skin. We're going to have to humble ourselves and accept correction when correction is necessary. Again, just think of it on a human level, a father to his child. A father who doesn't correct his child doesn't love his child. And the results of that can be tragic, and we see it all around us in the day in which we live. Even more so on a spiritual level. Just like a physical father, a physical father, a spiritual father admonishes and reproves and and corrects, even disciplines when is necessary for the welfare of their children. So a spiritual father is one who admonishes. He's one who corrects. And again, he does it out of love. He does it out of love. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish as my beloved children. So again, a father has an intimate relationship with his children. Out of love, he corrects them. So too do spiritual fathers. Now, the Corinthians, obviously, they got a lot of issues. They need to be dealt with. They're a disobedient group. They're not living a, a morally upright life. They're doctrinally unsound, spiritually immature. But what did Paul, how did Paul's, what was Paul's hard, atti- hard attitude towards them? He loved them. And didn't I say at the beginning that this whole thing has to be motivated out of love? A love for Christ, a love for God, a love for men, fallen men, a love for men who who are taking steps of repentance and faith, but they're immature. On a physical level with our children, with babies, have you noticed that not everything is clean? Sometimes they're a mess. So too are spiritual babies. But just like we love our physical babies, we have to love our spiritual babies. We have to love them. And Paul was motivated out of love. The word love or beloved there in the context comes from agapo. You're familiar with that word. We talk about it a lot. It speaks about God-like love, the strongest kind of love, the deepest kind of love. It's more than just brotherly love, phileo. It's the kind of love that out of willful purpose serves one who's the object of that love. Paul very easily could have been upset. He could have been disappointed with the Corinthians poured a whole lot of time in them and they still weren't getting it could have walked away could have blown his top blown a cork if you will could have got angry with him but instead of turning away or being discouraged or angry he chose to just keep on loving them tenderly loving them as a father loves his children he chose to love them deeply he chose to love them with a self-sacrificing love for them and he didn't give up on them just as a physical father loves his children. Physical father wants to be kind. He wants to be gracious. He wants to understand his children as much as he can so that he can help them. A father wants to know his children's weaknesses so that he can come alongside and strengthen them. A father wants to know what, where his children's fears are so that he can come along and encourage them. He wants to know where their needs are so that he can come along and meet those needs. So too on a spiritual level with spiritual fathers. 
Spiritual follows for others, right? If we are discipling other people, then we've got to learn to love other people. We've got to learn to love other people, not get so upset with everybody. And we've got to give each other time to grow. And then we've got to set aside our own agenda, our own, uh, our own agenda for the welfare of, uh, of others. Because that's exactly what Christ did. Self-sacrificing humility. He gave of himself. He loved his disciples. And again, as we've been going through the book of John, again, these guys aren't always the sharpest pencils in the drawer, right? Just like us. He loved them. What is love? 1 Corinthians 13, love is what? Patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. How has Christ loved us? How has God loved us? Romans 5 8, God demonstrated his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us before we were cleaned up, and God still loves us. You know, what's the most amazing thing? That he loved us before or he still loves us in spite of ourselves? Sometimes a father disciplines and he disciplines out of love. The father, God the father, also disciplines us. Likewise, Hebrews 12, verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor fate when you're reproved by him. For those who love the Lord uh, loves his discipline. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So love has an intense concern for others. So if you're going to enter into a discipling relationship with someone else, then you're going to have to have an intense concern for that person. You're going to have to have an intense love for that person, uh, for their welfare on a spiritual level. You're going to be thinking about them. You're going to be praying for them. You're going to be encouraging them. You're going to be challenging them. You're going to be long-sufferingly loving them. And then you're going to give yourself up for them. And in Christ-like humility and Christ-like love, if you're following the Savior, you are going to give yourself up for them. First Thessalonians 2 verse 8, Having thus fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. Again, we're far too into the information. And this is much greater than just an information dump. This is us, life on life to others. This is our life investing to others because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did as he came to this world and invested in our lives. Therefore, Paul says, we're to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not require equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So listen, if you're going to enter in a relationship on a discipling level with somebody else for their spiritual welfare, if you're going to try to do them a good spiritually, you're going to have to give them sacrificial love. And listen, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. If you want to make a positive spiritual impact in somebody else's life, it's going to cost you. It's not going to happen by accident. It's going to have to be intentional. And you're going to have to set aside you. And you're going to have to set aside yourself, your agenda, for their benefit. Your attitude towards them must, has to be that I'm willingly going to help you because I want to be an encouragement to you. I'm going to give you myself in Christ-like love. I'm going to give you my time. I'm going to invest myself in you. Because that's what Christians do. Because that's what Christ did. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as beloved children, my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So somebody who's a spiritual father, who's entered into this kind of relationship with somebody else, not only admonishes, not only loves, but he cares enough to share the truth. He shares enough, number three, he cares enough to share the truth. So, so uh, the, the gospel, so somebody comes to the knowledge of, of the person of Jesus Christ, they come to faith. In Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now, Paul's not listing these in chronological order, obviously. In order to, have a, to be a father, you have to have children. But in order to do somebody spiritual good, you've got to be sharing the truth with them and you've got to be available to them. And maybe you're somebody who has an opportunity to share truth with somebody and lead somebody to salvation, faith in Christ. And that's wonderful. Obviously, you're not the source of life. That's God who raises people from the dead. Our, our responsibility, just like in evangelism, is just to be available and be faithful. We have to be available to people. There have been people in my life, and I'm certain, like in your life also, that you've had the opportunity to share the gospel with, who've repented, they've come to faith in Christ, and you're able to help them grow in their faith and understanding. There have been people in my life that uh, have come to faith before me, uh, but they were stagnant. They weren't growing. And I had the opportunity and the privilege of being their spiritual stepfather, if you will, uh, privilege of sitting down with them one-on-one, face-to-face, and over, face-to-face and over a long period of time, trying to encourage them, challenge them, admonish them, lovingly rebuke them back to a constant walk with Christ, trying to help them see Christ, trying to help them understand the truth of the Scripture. So again, they might grow in grace and the knowledge of uh, the Savior, of the Lord Jesus Christ. They might grow in their love for Him and again be useful in service to Him. But if you're going to enter into that kind of relationship with people, you're going to have to be available. It's going to cost you. You're going to have to make yourself available to them. And again, that means self-sacrificial. You're going to have to set aside you. You're going to have to set aside your priorities, your issues, your likes, dislikes. And then you have to be intentional in the pursuit of other people and uh, uh, take time with them because people take time. People take time. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, and you've never shared the gospel with somebody or never led anybody to faith in Christ or you've never sat down in some kind of discipling relationship to help somebody else grow spiritually, uh, then I see this with the utmost kindness, but you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to examine yourself, make sure that you really are in the faith because life produces life. Having gone, life produces life. 
If Christ has been so kind to you, if God has been so kind to you through the person of Jesus Christ, if God has put spiritual life in you, the glory of the person of Jesus Christ, the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit within you, there must be within you a desire to reproduce. There must be a desire within you to do someone else spiritually good because that's Christ-like. That's Christ-like. If you lack that, then you need to really... Repent or ask yourself the question if you're truly a follower of Christ. Because I think I mentioned it this morning, there's a vast difference between believers and people who love the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a very popular message today, but it's biblical. Second Corinthians 13, 5 says, Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you unless you fail the test? If you have the life of Christ in you, then you're going to have the same passions and desires to reach out and be a spiritual blessing to those around you as he had. Too many, too many professing believers have never produced a spiritual offspring one. They've never led a single person to Christ. They've never helped train somebody up in the way of godliness and righteousness. They've never reproduced. They claim to be followers of Christ, but they are living completely contradictory to who the person of Jesus Christ is. Completely contradictory to whom they claim to follow. The one who came from heaven to earth, the one who incarnated himself, he came out of love to seek and save the lost, to create more followers who go out and do likewise. Every believer should be a spiritual father, so to speak. Every believer should be an instrument in the hands of God to lead somebody else to Christ, to repentance and faith, and then help them grow on a spiritual level. Every single person in this room listening to me on the Internet, if you claim to follow in Christ, then you must be in a discipling relationship. You should be discipling somebody else. You should be discipling somebody else, and you should be discipled by someone who's a little bit further down the road than you. Fourth one. Verse 16, he says, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. So if you're going to be discipling somebody else, then you're going to have to set an example for other people to follow. Be imitators of me. Just like in your own family, right? I mean, you've got a whole bunch of people watching you. You've got your children watching you. You've got your, your wife watching you. So, too, on a spiritual level, your spiritual children are going to watch you. If you want people to follow you as you follow Christ, that means you need to be following Christ, <laughs> Right? It needs to be, you need to be following Christ if you want people to follow you as you follow, as you follow Christ. You need to be somebody who's worthy of imitating, somebody who's worthy of being followed. Now, if you're one of those who has the attitude, don't follow me, right? have you ever heard anybody say that? Don't follow me. On a spiritual level, then I would say it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to grow up. Stop being a spiritual child. Become an adult. Become somebody in Christ that can be followed. Somebody who can help someone else. Stop longing for milk and start desiring the meat of the word. Stop watching so much TV and read your Bible a little bit more. So that you can be a spiritual encouragement to somebody else. So again, if you're going to ask someone to follow you, you need to be somebody worthy of being followed. And that also means you need to be genuine. Now, outside the home, people tend to put on their best. Outside the home, that's when people really look good, really act good. That's when they're fine, because that's what I ask, how are you doing on Sunday morning? I'm fine, because everybody's fine on a Sunday morning. 
But the reality is, is when you're away from the public and you're in your home, that's probably who you are. Who you are with your children. Who you are with your spouse. We have to be careful, right? That our moods, our attitudes, our actions in the home, they really expose the real us. Puts us on full display. We need to be genuine. We need to make sure the best of our physical ability, spiritual ability also, that we're walking in the spirit, not walking in the flesh. So we've got to make sure that our actions don't contradict our instruction, our admonition. We've got to make sure that we're not only teaching right truth, right principles, but we're actually living rightly, living right principles. And we want to come alongside and do someone else spiritually good. So someone who has a desire to do someone else spiritually good, they, number one, they admonish, two, they love, uh, three, they're a spiritual father to someone, uh, number four, they set an example that can be followed. Number five, they teach. He teaches. For this reason, verse 17, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So I think it's a really great picture of the love Paul had, had for the Corinthians. Uh, he commands them to be imitators of him. And he says, look, I love you so much, I'm going to send you Timothy. Why? Why, why am I going to send you Timothy? Well, because he's just like me. He's just like me. He's a faithful follower of Christ. My beloved, faithful child in the Lord. And how, how did that relationship happen? Well, that relationship happened, and Paul, what did he do? He poured out his life into Timothy. And because Paul had poured his life out into Timothy, and Timothy was faithful to, faithful to follow, Christ, or follow Paul in his faithfulness, now Timothy is ready to be used by God to encourage and pour out his life and still others. It's replication. It's reproduction. When we're following Christ and we become Christ-like, we're able to take our spiritual children, help them, train them up, and then send them out so they can represent us and represent Christ and become that Christ-likeness that the world needs to see uh, everywhere. Christ loved Paul and Christ trained Paul and Paul loved Timothy and Paul trained Timothy. And now Paul's going to send Timothy out to remind you of my ways which are in Christ just as I teach everywhere in every church. He's going to remind you of the Christ-like pattern that I live, that I teach everywhere. So again, the replication, the example, he's going to come and teach just like I teach. And again, I think it's a pattern and a practice to watch but also I think it's specific truths. Eternal, great eternal truths of the Word of God. Backed up again by way of example. So if we're going to teach somebody else, it probably goes without saying, but it probably needs to be understandable. That would be helpful. And if you're going to teach somebody who's on a spiritually infant level, then it probably needs to be pretty fundamental. How do you read your Bible? How do you study your Bible? How do you pray? Which assumes the fact that you know how to do that in your own life first. If you're going to teach somebody else how to do that. If you're going to share with others, you've got to be doing those things yourself. So that means you've got to be following Christ if you want to be followed as a Christ follower. That means you have to have a plan for your own reading of the Bible, your own study of the Bible, prayer, memorization of Scripture, applying the Word in your own life. Simple topics along the way need to be developed and talked about variety of things, assurance of salvation, victory over sin, etc. and so forth. 
But whatever the doctrinal content is, you, you need to be practicing these things in your own life. You need to have some kind of working knowledge of the truth and living out that knowledge of the truth. Uh, some kind of working knowledge of fundamental biblical truth that you can pass on that information to others. So that you can help train others. And again, if you say, well, I don't, then it, my dear friends, it's really time to get with it. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's a babe, but solid food is for the mature, because of the practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to know Christ's word. You need to be able to share it at least on some kind of fundamental level. You need to be able to feed yourself. You need to fill up your own spiritual cup if you're ever going to come alongside and be able to help fill up other people's spiritual cup, so to speak, right? Uh, If you're going to be an encouragement to somebody else on a spiritual level. So the call to discipleship is really a call upward. It's a call to reject complacency. It's a call to maturity. It's a call to Christ-likeness because this is what it means to be a Christian. Uh, A Christian is, is not just a passive recipient of information a christian actively pursues people and active actively loves people incarnationally just like christ modeled walks with people and lastly number six it says someone who enters a uh, somebody who enters into a discipling relationship somebody who's not afraid to discipline so paul says they're not afraid to discipline verse 18 now some have become arrogant as though i were not coming to you but i will come to you soon if the lord wills and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but, oh, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So just like physical fathers, there's a time when we have to discipline our children, physical children. So too at times spiritual fathers. Sometimes a believer goes the wrong direction. They go into some kind of a abhorrent behavior or or abhorrent doctrinal direction and they need to be corrected and we correct them out of love just like our children so out of love at times with our spiritual children there needs to be confrontation i think the corinthians thought they were good they could just keep sinning they're never going to see this joker paul again he's not coming back so they were arrogant inflated puffed up they thought they could get away doing with whatever they wanted to whatever they pleased but paul isn't going to let their spiritual sin go unchallenged He's not going to let their sin go unchallenged. He's going to bring discipline if he needed. He said, I'll come back if that's the Lord's will. What do you desire? I shall come back with a rod or with love or a spirit of gentleness, right? If, if the Lord wills and you continue in sin, I'm going to deal with it. Just like mom. <laughs> when she's having a hard time with the kids. You need to obey me. If you don't, it's going to be serious consequences. When your father comes home, right? It's not a threat. It's reality. Sometimes that gets kids' attentions, right? Sometimes dads have to come and bring the rod. Now, again, if we fail to discipline our children on a physical level, it means we don't love them. Same thing with spiritual children. Same thing holds truth. I, I just, as I'm going through these notes and just thinking about it, I, I think of a guy one time that really went off the rails. And boy, I, I spent a little bit of time with him. And he went off for a long time. 
But he's come back, and he's just a tremendous encouragement in my life. And at times it was difficult, but it's just an encouragement because he just needed to be called to faithfulness and to Christ-likeness. And if we love people on a spiritual level, we don't want to see them go the wrong direction. We don't want to see our kids go in the wrong direction. We discipline them because we love them. Same thing on a spiritual level. And discipline is never easy. It's never easy for the one who's receiving it. It's never easy for the one who's administrating it. But it's necessary. Especially if it's administered in humility with great grace out of love. I always tell them fathers, uh, when you discipline your children, your physical children, uh, do it a little bit, with, a little bit more grace. Be, be a little more kind. You don't have to be as harsh as you think you need. You give grace. So these are the elements, right? These are the characteristics, what needs to be when we enter in a discipling relationship with somebody. And again, a discipling relationship is just somebody who has a desire to somebody else, do somebody else spiritually good. The discipler, he admonishes, he loves, he, he's a spiritual father to somebody, he sets the example that can be followed, he teaches, he disciplines. That's the goal. That's the command. Reproduction. Now, probably we're not all perfect, and we're not all perfect, and we can all see how far we fall short, but the one who has all authority has given his promise of his power and his presence so we can carry out the tasks that he's commanded us to do. We just have to be available. We have to be obedient. We call out to God to help us in this task that's a difficult one, and we have to be willing to give up our life for other people and pour into people's lives. And again, I've said it a couple times, but... And it takes time. It takes time. You're going to have to change your life, change your schedule, change your priorities. But what would you rather do if you had the opportunity to pour into your life, somebody else's life on a spiritual level, to help them in their maturity in Christ as just for them on a personal level and for their family and for whoever they come in contact with? It's just like Christ. What a great opportunity. And we're all debtors to grace. All right, our Father and God, we're so thankful for our time this morning and this evening, and we just are so thankful that you are so kind to us, a God who loves us immensely and has sent your love through uh, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for that. We are thankful for the relationship we have with you because of your love. We're thankful for the relationship we have with Christ because of his love. And we're thankful for the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit who has made us new creations. All all things are new in Christ. And we sit here uh, on the calendar. Uh, A day will turn and the calendar will change, uh, but you won't. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the rock. And no matter what happens in the world of chaos, the world of men and their rebellion, you're the one sure foundation that we all have. So I just pray you'd help us to grow in our love, help us to grow in our obedience, help us to look up, help us to be an encouragement with each other, to walk with each other, to challenge each other, to love each other, to be patient with each other, and help each one of us to point ourselves into each other to Christ where our hope comes from. We love you. Use us, we pray, as we serve you well. In Jesus' name, amen.